Welcome to She Witness Podcast. Welcome back to our second episode of uh, She Witness Podcast. Uh, I'm Ines and uh, uh, I'm here today with Sarah and our guest speaker, um, Becky uh, Coleman. Today we're talking about the uh, different forms of uh, violence in close relationships and uh, how to spot the signs. Uh, so I guess it's better if you actually introduce yourself, Becky, uh, your background, um, your experience and so on. Yeah, sure. Thank you. And thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be on the podcast and it's my first podcast and it's a topic I'm really passionate about. So if I talk too much, then just stop me anytime. <laughs> so I have a background in psychology and academia and psychology for my bachelor's. During that bachelor's degree, I volunteered. Um, I've been always interested in feminism and women's rights, being raised by a single mum and my grandmother and my aunties. So I looked for volunteering roles that were helping women in my local area. And I kind of just fell into domestic violence organizations. So I started to volunteer for a domestic violence, or in Scotland, we call it domestic abuse organization, um, helping women in crisis that were disclosing their violence in their close relationship. And that was once a week during my bachelor's degree. Um, and when I finished my bachelor's, I knew I really wanted to work in the domestic violence field and um, supporting women because I just found the work so interesting and so important and I didn't realise how much of a problem it was in Scotland itself um, and it sort of challenged all my stereotypes that I previously thought about the issue. Um, so it took a while to get a job in the field because it's quite competitive because they are organizations supporting women, they're feminists, so they pay really well compared to other NGOs. So it was quite hard to get a job, so I had to get more experience. I worked in homelessness for a while, homelessness projects for young people, and then I eventually got a job um, for a domestic violence NGO supporting women, children and young people. And in that job, I worked for almost two years. Um, I was a frontline worker, working, supporting specifically children and young people of mothers experiencing violence in their close relationship, or they had previous experience of it as well. And I did therapeutic work with children and young people around safety, their emotions, their feelings, and healthy and unhealthy relationships. Um, so that's where I have my experience from. So hopefully I can draw on some of the case studies and talk about them to you guys today and now I'm in Norway obviously and um, I am doing a master's in human rights. During my time working in the NGO I got really interested in children's rights and I found the strain of being a frontline worker quite heavy so I wanted to take a break um, while I'm still quite young and do a master's in the same sort of field um, and I'm lucky enough now that I can do some work with Caritas and do some training and awareness raising on violence and close relationships, but take a break from the frontline work while I'm studying my master's. Thank you, Becky. Um, and it's, uh, I'm glad you mentioned the training also we did in, in Caritas for the volunteers because it's so uh, very relevant for today's topic. Uh, from the training, we did notice that 
um, and I guess it goes for uh, in just in general that it's not always easy to spot the different forms of violence because what some people might um, define as violence in close relationships is not really it's it's less than what maybe what what others might define as violence in close relationships. For example, we we talked about um, the economical violence that women face. Um, the psychological violence as well, or the digital violence that we see a lot today. Um, and, and we've noticed, you know, from the feedback from the volunteers that they're, they're so more aware of this. So, uh, so yeah, very, very connected to, to, the, um, to the topic today. The most common that we sort of stereotypically think of when we think of violence in close relationships is the physical one which is obviously really important to know about and happens a lot. Um, but it's the most common that we know about. So sometimes it overshadows the other ones that are really detrimental and negatively impact people's lives. The other ones are psychological, um, digital, financial and sexual violence. And I think it's important as well to mention that it's not just one kind that will happen to a person and they can all be really interlinked and overlap with one another. So if there's psychological violence, there can also be physical. Um, if there's digital, there's also going to be some psychological. There could also be financial. So I think, I used to think of them as separate categories, but they all um, really interlink and overlap with one another. And they're all different for different people. Mm -hmm. I, I, I totally agree with you that multiple forms of violence will show in different cases. Um, but sometimes uh, it starts with just one thing. It starts with just that one restriction or that one um, control over your social media or that control over with which friends you're meeting. So do you think it's more difficult to spot it when it's just like when it's the beginning and you just start feeling things from one specific aspect of your life? Definitely, it's a really good point. I'm really glad that you mentioned that, Sarah, because in Scotland, we have a new sort of law. It's called Domestic Abuse Bill Scotland Act, and it was in 2018, so three years ago. But because laws take a long time to come through, it's just now starting to be an act. And it's basically about psychological violence and about this point. Um, and we call it in Scotland's course of control. So we recognise in the law, it, it was um, started, it took three years to build this law and it interviewed women and children that were survivors of violence and close relationships. So all in the law, it's so big, there's like hundreds of pages and it's all experiences of women and children. And they talk about this specific point that psychological violence specifically starts very slowly and it's a pattern of abusive behaviour that in time increases. So eventually you find yourself in a situation where you're totally isolated, totally controlled, and you can't remember how you got there. Um, and that's why it's really hard as well to disclose it to people because if you mention that one small incident, like, oh, he, you know, picked a different dress for me to wear, it can almost sound silly to people, but it's not about that small incident. It's about the huge, bigger picture 
And um, I think it's important. I remember I was at a training by like a sort of expert on psychological violence. And he said, you should look at this kind of violence as not what the person does to you, but what they prevent you from doing. Um, and I think that's a really good way of when you maybe think you're in an abusive relationship, but you're not sure because you're confused, you're tired, mentally exhausted. If you can try and write down and think, okay, what, what am I being prevented from doing that I used to do? Um, I maybe went a bit off topic there. <laughs> no, I, I think it's totally related. Uh, related and uh, it, it's very important to mention this part of the starting to notice and I'm not sure and as you were saying like there are many factors that might lead us to be confused about the situation we are in because we are tired because we are going through it uh, and it really affects us in, in many levels so I think it was really interesting um, I, I was wondering if you have like um, some story or experience that you could tell us about this frontline intervention uh, with this new law for example like how how would you intervene with them to make them understand what was psychological violence? That's a good point. Um, and I think because I worked with children specifically, it's maybe good to give an, a simple example of what we used to do with kids and it's easier to understand. So for children to understand psychological violence is really difficult because even for adults to understand it is hard. And um, where does it come from? How does it start? How do you get to this place? But we used to do with children, we used to ask them to write down some rules that their parents used to have in the house for them. And you would find that, and you would ask them, what do you think about those rules? And what rules did, for example, teachers have for you or friends have for you? And you would find that the children with an abusive parent had loads of rules in place. Um, and the same thing with women that were survivors when the what women's workers used to do is they used to do a timeline for them and this is really important to not do when you're in crisis but when you're in recovery because it can be very traumatic but a timeline of all the events from the start of the relationship with the person to the end and when they look back they can see that there were many rules in place of things they were not allowed to do or allowed to do people they were not allowed to see things they were not allowed to wear places they were not allowed to go to. And that kind of timeline can make the person recognize um, because it's not good. It's quite, um, can have a negative impact to just say to someone, you know, you should have left that relationship. It was very abusive. It's important to give them that information so that they can recognize it for themselves and be empowered. So doing that kind of timeline with women or the rules exercise with kids helps them to see see that um, and in terms of that bill that new law as well we can take those timelines to evidence um, rather than just one phone call to the police about one controlling behavior it can be a full picture of lots of events over maybe a, a few years that's really interesting and i think those are very simple activities or exercises that people can actually do at home also like if they feel uh, like building up their timeline and trying to evidence like the most significant events, they can start looking at it and seeing, okay, like, I don't know, the birth of my sister was very important. And the next thing I remember is my partner, like being mean about me spending time with my sister, for example, 
Uh, and by building this timeline, you realize that some events that are very good have the same impact as some that were really bad. And you start realizing what you remember. So those are really interesting uh, activities or exercises for people to do. But you mentioned something that I found very interesting. You said it would be better to do this in the process of healing and not uh, when you're in the crisis, right? I would just like to ask a bit more uh, on this. Like if you find someone in a crisis, if you go to the crisis center and you are in that state that you are not sure yet, what is the best approach? Uh, What should we say to these people that seek for help in that first moment where they are still confused? That's a good question. Um, And I think you guys will also have experience of this as well, specifically you and us in the crisis center and volunteers in Caritas in the crisis center. And what Ines and I had told them, told volunteers and what we had came to an agreement during our training for volunteers in Caritas that would meet people would be really simple things that you yourself actually practice when you work in an NGO or you support people to listen to them um, and to believe them and to not tell them what to do. Because one, because it's not practical at that time, people are too confused and tired and traumatized, but two, because You don't want to replicate the behaviours of the perpetrator. You want to give people the total control over their own situation and let them make the decisions. So it's important to give information rather than to tell them what to do and to not judge. In our heads, if our best friend came to us and told us that their partner was abusing them, would probably be to scream or shout or cry. But try to stay calm and to really just support the person, not make it about yourself, not judge them because you only know the tip of the iceberg. You don't know what's happened underneath through the whole relationship. And it's taken a lot for them to come forward and to talk to you about it, definitely. Yeah, and also when you first meet the person, you notice that, you know, all the information you get is not necessarily also in chronological order or maybe they miss out a lot of important information uh, that you will find out after a few you know other meetings and so that's also what i notice very often is when you, you when you follow up a person and you meet them you will eventually get the whole story but when you're in a crisis of in a state of uh, crisis uh, then it's very difficult to get the whole story out you probably most or most certainly you will tell you know the most recent thing that happened and then when you go back you'll see there's more to the story as well um so yeah i agree totally agree with becky is you should even though you know the story of the person you meet sounds a bit um you know, there's a lot of holes in the story. Uh, it's not consistent. It's, it's it's more because of the state the person is in and not, you know, the actual story. Um, I think it's yeah, very important to, to have in mind. Mm. Uh, we see that with victims of multiple types of violence, that in the moment when they are being interviewed to tell their story, it's very difficult. And sometimes it's normal to even forget some of the things that happened because it's a very stressful moment. So for those who are listening to us and that are afraid of going to tell their story and then having this moment where they can't really tell the story as it is and forget important things, what would be like a, a motivational thing that we could tell so that people feel inspired to go and ask for help, even though they are afraid of these little mistakes or uh, things that they might forget or telling the story backwards? Uh, what could we tell them? I think just 
the fact that they have went to actually speak up and say it is so brave um, in itself. And on average, at least in the UK, it takes a woman eight times before they leave their partner for various reasons. So actually to just open up and talk, they have to recognise and I hope they recognise that that is a massive step that they have um, taken and a really important one. And that's why, like, Ina's what you were saying, and Sarah also, the people that have experienced trauma, it's really important for workers and professionals to be trained and to be trauma aware so that they don't disbelieve people coming forward about violence. And that's why it can be so problematic for women and men that disclose this to the police when they don't when the police find gaps in their story, when they're not trauma trained. And think, like we know like, oh, but it's very easy to forget all this information um, because this person is traumatized and it will just come back in small, small parts. And in terms of like helping in this process of preparing to ask for help, because it, it takes, it's not like from one day to the other that we just decide, okay, this is over. I'm going to ask for help. Sometimes it takes some months, some years even to think about it, to think if I really want to leave, if I really want to ask for help. What are some things that people who are experiencing some type of violence can do at home that can help them? Besides from the activity that you mentioned before, for example, making a timeline or thinking about the rules in the house, what kind of things could they do before asking for help that could help them also feel more confident on what they are going to share? I think a lot of the work that the women's workers specifically did, and I was the children's worker, so I monitored the children's safety and the organisation I worked for, but I worked alongside the women's workers and they did a lot of preparation and safety planning uh, with women. And of course, these women had already came to us and asked for help, but they hadn't left their partner yet. So there was a lot they had to think about. And many times we would meet women and never see them again because they, they didn't leave, which is very normal, like I said before. But they would, I think, even if you can do it yourself, safety planning makes you really comfortable. It makes you, even if it's very simple, you write down, okay, an emergency contact of someone that you know, keeping your phone charged, um, texting your friend to let them know where you are at what time, keeping a bag packed with emergency essentials, a change of clothes, toothbrush, maybe some food for your kids and a safe place in your house. All these things, even if you don't use them, will keep in the back of your mind that if there's an emergency situation or if you get a chance to leave, if your partner goes to work, if they're late coming home, if there's a gap or a space, a refuge, and you can get out that day suddenly, then you have a, a, a plan in your mind. Um, I think those can help people before they leave and make their mind be at rest. And also with like, um, I guess, having the right information. We know that if you are, for example, new in Norway and you want to leave, but you don't really know who you're going to ask for help, uh, that can be like a, a very big, um, um, like a hinder or a, you know, something that will um, make it more difficult to leave. So I guess there are many organizations that do work very closely with women. And I think uh, a lot of the time, uh, a lot of women feel like when they have gone to the crisis center or to, you know, all of these organizations, then it's suddenly very real. And then the situation is uh, now escalated a lot. 
more than what it used to be. Um, but there are many organizations that work with women that are very, like we say in Norwegian, uh, like there's a very low threshold. Uh, you can be in contact with them. You can talk to someone without you having to report your partner to the police, without you having to leave your partner. I think that's very important for also these women to, to know that even though you, you talk to someone, it doesn't mean that the situation will be, you know, a lot different for you. Maybe you just need to talk to someone uh, and then you are able to go back and think about it. Like your work, uh, Becky, in Scotland, uh, the woman could come and go. So I guess that's, uh, that's what the crisis center in Oslo also offers. They have like a day, um, like a day center where women could, could go and talk to someone. Because I know from, uh, it's not directly related, but from our work with au pairs, we know that a lot of them, um, au pairs are, by the way, uh, like young people coming to Norway for cultural exchange and they're living with Norwegian families. And if, if the au pairs are in a situation that is very difficult for them, they say it's, 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 um, it's difficult to, to ask for help or to talk to someone because they feel like the situation will get very um, serious. So I guess I'm, I'm thinking that this could be also a problem with, with, uh, with women seeking help as well. Um, yeah. So I think that's actually a, a very important uh, topic in us because we, we hear all these stories about au pairs that are suddenly like their documents are taken or they are forced to work more, to work more hours than they should. Um, and then like many of them don't come from Europe. So they have the problem of the visa and with a visa for au pair, you can't just quit your job and find another job. You have to apply for a new visa. Uh, so it's interesting how we were talking about spotting the signs of violence is a process. And this, like when we talk about close relationships, it, an au pair is in a close relationship with the family she's living with, even though it's not the same family or related. Um, so it's a process to, find out what are the signs am i in a violent relationship but then it's another process to understand how can i ask for help what help is out there so it's two very difficult things to do and it all comes at once almost i remember i i see that you're suggesting keeping a diary uh becky would you like to develop a bit more on that how would this help these women yeah, sure. And um, before that, I just wanted to mention that the example of the pair is really good. And you guys will have good examples of that kind of employee-employer exploitation and dying. Um, and obviously, because my background is supporting women and children, loads of my examples are a kind of normal, what you would hear, male and female violent relationship in a domestic setting. But it's important, of course, to mention that this kind of violence, psychological, digital, financial, can be perpetrated anywhere in the workplace, um, between friends, between family members. It does not have to be um, an intimate partner. And yes, yeah, so the, the keeping the diary one was something that they had spoke about to survivors in Scotland because they found that it was so hard to log and to show evidence of psychological violence, that if women suspected this was happening to them, that they could start you know, writing the date and time of incidents, um, because it's of course not 
one incident that happens. Um, it's a build-up of lots of incidents that will escalate over time. So then you can present that to the police or to whoever you disclose it to, um, and you can get a full picture. But I also wanted to say that the reason it's good to not give a set case study so that we can show that psychological violence and violence in close relationships is different for everyone. And in the women that I supported, for some, it was totally different than it was for others. For example, I supported some children of middle-class working mothers. Um, some were doctors, which is really important to highlight as well. This is not an issue of working or lower-class people. This is an issue that goes across all classes and all ethnicities of people. Um, and these women had a different kind of psychological violence perpetrated to them than others. And maybe they were prevented from going to workplace. They were belittled in their success and what they could do. Their self-esteem was reduced in that way. Whereas I supported women who were stay-at-home mums. And so you couldn't see their psychological violence being perpetrated in the fact that they were prevented to go to work because they didn't work. And it's important to show as well that many women choose to stay at home and look after their children. And it doesn't mean that they're controlled but maybe their partners controlled them in different ways and reduced their self-esteem, made them doubt their abilities as mothers. So that's very different from the, the other case. And maybe younger women that were not married yet or did not have kids, their partner would use different techniques like belittling their appearance, uh, really picking on maybe things like their weight, what they wore, who they're friends with, monitoring where they went during the day, so it can really look different um, for everyone, just to give a bigger picture. Yeah, I think it's very important that you were highlighting that this type of violence can happen in a workplace, can happen uh, in different types of relationships that we all have with different types of background. Uh, and I guess it's also like when we think about domestic violence, we normally think about a married couple, right, that's already living together. But this can happen in young people that are just dating, right? Like yeah. have a boyfriend or a girlfriend and they start uh, noticing that there are these signs or sometimes they don't notice because it's just like part of the culture as we were talking last episode that the culture will have influence also on your judgment over violence. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think this is really relevant to, to just make people aware that this can happen to literally anyone and it's not your fault that's happening to you. Mm -hmm. It's just important to try to spot the signs of what is happening. And even you see, you can, like, you, we could give people lists of how to spot the signs and it could still happen because this kind of violence is intentional. It's planned. It's not one incident where your partner calls you a name. Um, these perpetrators, if you like to call them that perpetrate this violence to the people that they are close to, they know what they are doing and they're very intelligent about it. So that's why, yeah, we, we shouldn't blame victims at all. It could happen to even an expert in the field. I mean, like, I might be wrong, but sometimes someone can be violent or abusive in, without noticing, without uh, doing it intentionally, but it's just like, well, that's what my parents did to me or that's what I did in my previous relationship. So I thought it was normal. So sometimes this uh, spotting these signs is not just important for you to go and ask for help and suddenly like intervene with the police and as Ines was saying uh, even going to a, a less threshold kind of intervention sometimes it's the first step is really to talk to the partner and to establish boundaries 
of what is happening and because some of these things that can happen might be solvable with a conversation. The problem is when it doesn't get fixed and it just keeps expanding. Am I saying it correctly or? Yeah, I, I understand what you mean. And I guess it's difficult because you don't want, we don't want to tell people who might be experiencing violence to just try and have a conversation depending on the safety aspect of their situation. Um, but there can definitely, there is proof of course that when people learn about healthy relationships, learn about gender equality, that it happens less than they understand and recognise maybe that they're perpetrating violence. And there will be really big differences between cultures and maybe in cross-cultural relationships. There might be some, that one of the partners from a different culture might request something or ask something or do something that in the other person's culture could actually be verging on violence but in their culture could be totally acceptable. So I guess in those situations, when you know you are in a safe space, then it's important to try and ask and inquire, do you, what do you think about that? Do you think that's totally acceptable? Why? And um, I think, I don't know, maybe you will know Inas, but in Norway, but in Scotland, they're doing a lot of um, healthy and unhealthy relationship work in schools just to make sure that especially young boys recognise what's okay and what's not in relationships. And even, and we'll talk about this, but with digital violence, because now young people are on their mobile phones all the time, they might think it's acceptable, and many do, to text their boyfriend or their girlfriend every minute of the day to ask them where they are, to check on them, to check their social media activity. And that's a bit of control but they don't know that. So there's a lot of work to be done, like you said, for spotting the signs for not just the victims, but also the people that are perpetrating the violence as well. Yeah, there's a lot of, um, I think we have a lot of uh, way to go to also work with the perpetrators as well, uh, and not just the victims, because uh, like you say, sometimes um, what what might be just completely normal in one, one culture is not normal in another uh, another culture. And I'm thinking also about what you said about the children and the digital uh, um, atmosphere. You know what's allowed, what's not allowed. Um, I think we are also now talking about um, something that um, they call uh, revenge porn. Um, so there's a discussion about that as well. And is it really, you know, a re revenge porn or is it abuse? Because it's not, you know, revenge. It's like just how you, how you formulate things as well uh, gives out a message. And if you call something revenge, then it's revenge for something you did. Um, so I, I think in Norway, we're also working about, uh, working a lot about, formulating like how we also say things because that's very important to for how you also give out a message I know uh, Becky you and I have also talked about the word violence in close relationships before because when you when you when you hear this you think about physical violence automatically um, and whilst if you think about abuse then there's a lot of different forms of abuse at least in my mind that uh, comes up uh, more than you know, hearing violence in close relationships. And when you when you and you are in the field and you're working with these issues, you don't really think about it. But you have to look at these things from like the perspectives of the people outside and the people who are actually in these situations. What 
do they think when they hear these words? And does it really make them think about the digital abuse that they're facing or the economical uh, abuse or violence that they're facing at home, you know? So we, have, we, we do have a lot of work to do in this, in this area, in Norway at least. I think one of the things you just mentioned, Inas, is super important, is like the way we put words into what we are describing. And if we are a social worker or uh, as Becky was saying, like when you hear the story for the first time, you should listen, not judge. And when you start putting words like violence, well, but that's abuse, that's emotional manipulation. That's when you start putting these words, suddenly the person is like, okay, this is much worse than what I thought. And in many cases, like Becky said, many of these women don't ever leave the house. They look for help, they get the help, and somehow things sometimes can be fixable and other times they can't. So this first ask for help doesn't mean that everything will end, their relationship with it will end or everything. Um, it's very important for these professionals working in these front lines to be very aware of their use of words because that might have a really big impact on how a person experiences their own experience. Yeah, I def definitely agree. And we discussed that before um, about the definitions, like Ines was saying, about in Norway how it's called violence and close relationships. And there's many positives to that because you can think of like outside the norm of a relationship. So you could think of same-sex couples and you can think of colleagues and friends. Um, but there are negatives because the violence part just makes you think physical. Um, from an outsider's kind of perspective anyway. But I also think, like you were saying about professionals being aware of the words, another thing that I noticed in my work was professionals being less aware of the kind of power imbalance between two people. For example, if you have a woman and a man and the man is being abusive or violent, there's a, lot, a big power imbalance there. And if you're a social worker, then you should really think about that. And it's not social workers' fault. I don't know in Norway, but definitely in Scotland, we don't have a lot of good training on violence and close relationships for social workers. They get maybe two hours maximum when they study about it. So usually they will invite, uh, say there's a child protection meeting, they will invite both mum and dad to the meeting. But there's an abusive relationship there and there's a huge power imbalance. So you should have two separate meetings so that mum can talk freely without being frightened of that. And then other power imbalance situations as well. Maybe there's a relationship and there's like a foreigner and a native together. Then there's a power imbalance too, or a boss and an employee. Um, so I think it's important for professionals to remember where power imbalance is present and where it can be manipulated. Yeah, and also like uh, for parents and children as well. Um, there's also power imbalance. Uh, you see in meetings that uh, often, I would say not, not necessarily young children, but youth um, under the age of 16 might have also troubles really opening up, uh, up about things if they are in meetings with their parents as well. Um, and if this relationship is abusive, of course. Um, so there's a lot of these things to keep in mind uh, when working with victims of, of, um, of abuse. Definitely, definitely. And just to, you know, just a story from the resource center. 
we know that, like I said in the start, Becky had, um, uh, you, you know, we did training for the volunteers and we saw such a huge difference um, from, you know, from the, their contact with us before and after the training. Um, so we see that, you know, training the people who are in frontline workers, it doesn't matter if, um, you know, for me, a frontline worker could also be a Norwegian teacher teaching a course because this person would might be the only person, you know, the only or a victim of domestic uh, violence and close relationships might only go to Norwegian courses and get to know their teacher. So for me, they are, you know, a frontline worker as well. But giving training people um, in these positions actually is very important to help um, the victims uh, mm -hmm. because if you are not aware of the signs that um, then you maybe you will not pick them up when talking to someone maybe someone is telling you about an issue um, you have you know with maybe your partner is uh, requiring you to you know, put all the money in their account every month and you only get, you know, a certain amount. And we know this happens a lot to, to women. If you are not trained, then you would not really know if this is, um, you know, digital violence or not. So, and also um, me having a volunteer calling me and saying, um, you know what, uh, Inas, I, I think we have a case of um, psychological violence here because he was in the seminar and he, and he knows how to spot the signs. And this is why we can help this woman because, you know, because he, he knew what the signs are, he recognized them and then he called me. So I think, you know, focusing on the training of professionals as well is very, very important, but also the cultural aspect, because I know we've talked about this before as well, but um, victims come from at least with us, they come from many different backgrounds and, you know, it, very international and having the culture sensitivity as well in place is very important when you are talking to, to someone who, ex, who are experiencing something very difficult. Just to um, understand them and understand when they, where they come from is, is, um, is really helpful. Um, and like you said, Becky, not, you know, not being judgmental and believing them as well. And also, I think we had spoke about this in the training regarding the cultural aspect of it. There was some research done by, correct me if I say this wrong, I don't know, the Norwegian Centre of Stress and Traumatic Studies. Is that correct? Yeah. And um, they had interviewed women who were of ethnic minority in Norway living in women's shelters because of domestic violence. And many of them had said that they were really unhappy with how professionals had treated them because they had just thought they were the same as the women that came before. So just because it was a Muslim woman and the other woman was Muslim, they expected, okay, we know exactly what this situation of domestic violence is. We know exactly what to do about it. Rather than asking the woman herself, what happened to you and what do you want to do about it? So there can be that issue as well of, maybe professionals being culturally trained, but then painting everyone with the same brush, rather than looking at the woman as an individual uh, with her own needs and wishes. Yeah, I think both of you mentioned two things that are very important. Uh, when we work in the field of human trafficking, for example, um, it's very important that 
doctors, nurses, teachers, uh, all these kind of people are aware of the signs. Uh, and with vi like uh, violence in close relationships, you can also spot the signs by not being even related to that person, just by the way they interact in public, just by the, the way they share what they're feeling with you. Like if you're a doctor, uh, if you're a nurse, you can see if there's someone always controlling the conversation, someone always answering for the patient, for example. And even as an employer, uh, here in Norway, I have a situation um, where we had someone working with us and we had to pay for her husband's bank account uh, and everything was controlled by him. He was the one asking how many hours is she working? Why does she have to go to the day? And like, in this case, it was so evident that we were all like, okay, something's wrong. Um, and finally, after a few months, we actually helped that uh, lady get out of the house um, and find a better situation for herself. But she was not from Norway uh, and her husband was Norwegian. So she also didn't know what was right, what was wrong, that maybe it was normal for him to have a bank account for her. Maybe it was normal that he was controlling that. And so when you're a foreigner, it's even more difficult, right? Because uh, we all know how hard it is to get even a bank account uh, here. And there are many things that can make those processes more complicated. And sometimes it's easier to have your Norwegian partner take care of some of your administrative things in the beginning, but that's not something that lasts forever. Um, and that's not something that is controlled and completely uh, supervised by another person. It's your own freedom. It's your own financial freedom in this case. So I think it's very important, those two things, that there are more stakeholders to this conversation than the ones that we are including in this podcast, for example, like literally anyone can spot the signs. And that as foreigners, we, we really need an extra push. We need extra help because even the services are exposed in a different language. It's not always available in a language that you necessarily understand. So I, I think that's also very important. Definitely. And you, you don't know the language. You don't know the support services that are available. Also, you're probably not going to be near your family and close friends from your country. So you don't have a support system. So already, maybe the person wants to control you. They have won half the battle because you don't have the people around you you would normally have. And there are also worries about immigration. And then if you have kids, worry about keeping your children close to you. Many different factors come into play when it is foreigners that are in these situations. We, we are seeing how there are different people that can help someone in this situation. But it's not always easy to spot the signs, right? Because the perpetrator sometimes can be a very nice person for everyone else. How, how do, you, do you see this perpetrator in other relationships? Yeah, that's totally right, Zara. And usually, I mean, stereotypically, a perpetrator of domestic violence, and you'll see it in TV shows about it or in books, will be very charming to other people. And that is normally the case, um, unfortunately. So it then makes it really difficult for the person to be believed, or in my example again, between a man and a woman, to make it easier, because that's my experience, it will make it really difficult for the woman to be believed when they go for help, even sometimes from her family and friends, because they will say, oh, but he's so helpful, he's so attentive, he collects you from everywhere that you go, he picks you up in his car, he calls you all the time, he buys you flowers, but those things can be like, turned around and can be quite controlling, but only visible if you're in that relationship. And also 
it happens a lot. I remember being in meetings with the mothers that were in the violent relationship and the perpetrator and his sort of police worker because he'd been convicted of something and they were trying to paint the violence as anger, which is something you'll commonly hear about. And the social worker will a lot of the time, unfortunately, believe it unless they have been trained on domestic abuse. And they will say, but he has, you know, anger problems. And we have signed him up to an anger issue program where he will go and talk to a therapist and have help for his anger problems. But usually what I would say to that is, but he goes to work, he doesn't get angry with his colleagues. He doesn't get angry with his friends or his family. So he's able to choose when or when not to be angry, which is meaning he's actually just abusive. Um, so that's quite common to, to hear, the anger issue thing. It really annoys me. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, as we were talking, that it's important to uh, have these courses on how to have a healthy relationship, even at schools. And maybe it's also important to learn how to distinguish emotions uh, and actions and the different ways a person can express themselves because anger doesn't have to be violent at all, right? And violence is not just because you're angry. So it, it's it's very difficult to, to see this happening, especially when the person is so perfect for everyone else. Mm-hmm. And just, I am the one seeing that dark side, but it's definitely something that if the parents, if the friends, if the network around the victim is more aware of this the subtle signs of an abusive relationship, it might make a huge difference on someone's lives. Definitely, because if you have the knowledge, then you can notice the signs. And it's not friends or family members' faults. Um, And all you want for, if if we're talking about romantic relationships, all you want for your daughter is to have a caring partner. And so you might just see that side of it and not that maybe you won't see the monitoring 24-7 of the person, the controlling where they go and what they wear because you're not in the house. But if they are aware that these things can start small but build up and become bigger, then yeah, they can see the perpetrator more clearly for what they are doing. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think this is really important, especially to let our uh, our listeners hear uh, that we all have a role to play in this issue. It's not something that we can say, okay, it's not related to me at all because I don't know anyone who's in this situation. It's about being aware of it, learning, slowly learning and paying attention. Yeah, definitely. And I guess it's just important to say as well that if you are in doubt or if you think you might be experiencing um, violence in your relationship, then just talk to someone about it. Um, because the worst that can happen is they will say, yeah, possibly, and then you discuss it further, or you're wrong, and nothing else other than that. Thank you so much, Becky. I, I think we're just wrapping up the, our <laughs> second episode. So uh, I, I, I guess we will also include like some information about how you can contact us. Um, I, you know, we will be available for if someone needs individual guidance, if they have any questions, it can be anything really, then you can send us an email and we will, we will reply there. Thank you. Uh, and Thank you so much, Becky, for joining us. It was great to have you. Thank you. I'm really happy to um, be able to raise some awareness and be a part of it. It was really fun to talk to you both. Thank you so much.